This is Dan Bappett from Dan Bappett and Cheats, and you're listening to The Dummy Room. This is the big time, girly. This is rock and roll. We now join the following program already in progress. So, Phil, you did some work on Ben Weasel's first solo record, right? Did you play uh, or what? I don't think I played on it, but I, I engineered. I helped engineer it. So I was in the studio during that, which was really cool. Uh, are you talking about Fidatavi? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That record was really interesting to be involved with, uh, you know, behind the board. Um, watching Vapid play was really cool. Like, he's super awesome. Vapid's one of my f- favorite musicians in our bubble and just... He's awesome in the studio. Was he playing like a Strat or something on that record? Because it's so jangly. You know? I, I think it was his usual guitar, but it was just super clean. Like he was playing through, he wasn't playing through Marshalls and shit. I think he was playing through like a Vox or something like oh, that. Okay. But, and then uh, I can't remember who played piano. I think that might have been a studio musician that played the piano on a couple of those songs. But yeah, it was just kind of a curveball for what we normally were used to doing. And I really enjoyed being involved in that yeah i love that record man that's that's the same studio that we recorded the teen punks and heat at oh okay and also i think that's the same studio we recorded the first common rider at also how was it to uh, have uh vapid sing on uh, rebel souls that was actually a weird story there because he he was just moving back to chicago from dc at that time and he had stopped by the studio, and uh, I said, hey, would you mind throwing some vocals on this song? And he was like, yeah, sure. And, and for some reason, the studio wasn't available, and I ended up recording that in Mass's basement of his house. And I was in the garage. Like, I set up this weird little recording setup in Mass's garage and ran the cables through the house into a room in the basement. And so Vavid was kind of just, like, standing in the corner with his back to the room singing into the mic. And I felt bad because for some reason there was some kind of technical glitch that I had to keep making him do it over and over. I'm like, dude, he's going to get pissed eventually. Like I'm not fucking singing this anymore, you know, but it ended up, it ended up turning out. Okay. He's not real prominent in the mix, but he's definitely in there. Yeah. Yeah. But we worked together some with the methadones too, because I, uh, I recorded some of their stuff engineered some of their stuff actually ended up singing on uh ill at ease the song ill at ease i'm doing kind of a really low um thing during the chorus and it's not real loud in the mix but i'm definitely in there and uh can't remember i don't think i really sang much or anything but um was it not not economically viable i believe is the Mm -hmm. record that i engineered for them and that's a great record
being involved in the studio during that record. I remember staying up late, late nights with uh, with Mike Byrne doing tracking the guitars and stuff. And at one point, Sonic Iguana is weird because in the summertime they have the air so fucking cold, you know, to keep the equipment that it's almost like a, they call it Sonic Igloo. And then in the in the wintertime, it's the opposite effect. They have the heat on like a motherfucker because it's cold in Indiana. And so it's like sauna iguana. And uh, <laughs> it must have been in the wintertime because Mike Byrne was recording a lot of that with no shirt on. It was like really awkward because it was late at night and it's just me and him in a room and he's got his shirt off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was always joking around like, like man, it's fucking hot. Take your shirt off, dude. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not doing that, man. It's, somebody's gonna walk in and go what the fuck are you guys doing but uh yeah uh we got to know all those guys really well i ended up moving in with pete uh the bass player pete mittler i lived with him for six six years and that was a cool uh man his house was like the punk house you know uh everybody lived there um jeff bizzotti from naked ray gun was our upstairs neighbor for a while i mean all in the same house like um God, who else lived there? Ken Ortman, um, Jeff Dean from the Bomb. Like we all lived together as roommates, and so the Methadones used to practice in the basement right under my bed. So, uh, dude, they play loud at practice, like really loud, and they would uh, rattle the shit off the shelves in my room and stuff. <laughs> but we had we had a lot of fun, you know, during the time I lived there with those guys. That's awesome. So I've been curious, man. So you wrote all these Teen Idol songs, and then the next thing you know, you're not really you're working for all these other bands. Was it weird for you not to be writing, or did you keep writing? I I really didn't write for anybody else, you know. And that's other than just like little parts. Like when I was in Even in Blackouts, I wrote all my bass lines, you know, right. stuff like that. But but I didn't write. I didn't contribute actual songs because I kind of felt like it wasn't my place. I don't know. For for me, it's like. Teen Idols is my band where I write my songs and everybody else, I just do what they want me to do, you know, so if I'm just a rhythm guitarist or a bass player or whatever, I'll write my lines, but I don't don't actually contribute. And and I don't know, it's almost like a break for me because I was so involved with writing. I mean, I wrote everything in Teen Idols, so it was just like almost a chore, you know, it was like we were on a, a record schedule like once every couple of years they expected a new full length out of us and so it was just constantly touring and working in the studio playing in other bands and now i got to write an album you know so it was like kind of a relief to not have to write any songs and just play yeah so that's kind of where i was at with the, all that stuff so have you went back to writing again or you got a bunch of demos you got some... I, i've started to dabble a little you know like the that's the main awesome. reason that i that I kind of quit was because, you know, being a new dad, I didn't want to be in like an absentee father right. and be on the on the road and miss my kid growing up, you know? So yeah. he's eight now. So now he kind of gets it. And he actually told me the other day, or he asked me, Dad, when are you going to write some more music? And I was like, really? Yeah, <laughs> you want me to? And he goes, yeah, well, hell yeah. You know? And I was like, oh, fuck. So uh, when we ride around in the car together, he always wants to listen to Teen Idol stuff, which <laughs> I think is kind of kind of awesome, you know? Hell yeah, that's and I was awesome. like. I said, do you you really like this music? He goes, I am your son. I was like, oh, <laughs> fair cool. enough, you know, <laughs> yeah, right on. So is he so, gonna? Yeah. Are you gonna kind of show him the ways of the guitar, or bass, or anything? Or is he well, play? he came. He's had a guitar since before he was born. My mom bought him a guitar, and uh, he doesn't know how to play it yet. But he's always had it around, like in his room and stuff. 
And so I was kind of noodling around on some stuff one day, and he came in with his guitar strapped on, and he said, Dad, I want to know how to play too. And I was like, all right, hell yeah. But I haven't really, like, you know, focused on teaching him or anything. He, he's young, you know, so I don't want to force anything on him. Right. Because that, that's the fastest way to get somebody to hate shit, you know. Totally. So, yeah, he is interested, and he sings really well. Like, I, I hear him when he, he doesn't know I'm listening, you know, and he's, his pitch is good and everything. I'm like, shit, yeah, he's got some kind of talent going on. That's awesome. That's we'll cool. see what happens with him. He's totally. he's uh, he's definitely his own person, so I'm not going to make him do anything, but if he's interested, I'll definitely help him. That's really cool. And I, I kind of had the same, you know, thing from my mom. I was raised by a single parent, only child kind of thing, and so... My mom didn't force me into anything, but if I took an interest, she was always supportive. You know, like, you know, I'll help you do whatever you need to do to a point as much as I can. Because, you know, um, I don't know, a lot of people probably don't know this, but my mom works for Sun Records. Oh, wow. The record label. Yeah. And she's she's been in the uh, entertainment industry since before I was born, coming up on 50 years now that she's been doing it. And uh, so I grew up in kind of a music business household. And we always had music on in the house. Usually, it's it was country music. She's a country person, you know, so uh, it was always the Grand Old Opry and shit like which I hated. You know, it was I was forced <laughs> I was forced to listen to it, and I absolutely hated it with a passion. So as soon as I had a say in the matter, I started buying Iron Maiden albums and shit. You know, like right. fuck that, I'll check this out. You know, and, and she would get kind of pissed, like quit playing that so loud. But um, but she was always supportive at, at one point or another almost everybody in teen idols has lived at my mom's house you know like when i had moved out when i was 18 and you know i was struggling to play music and pay the rent and work these shit jobs and she's like just move back in and bring your whole band and just live rent free here and do your music and i was like fuck uh, yeah so uh. so yeah matt lived with heather lived with me matt lived with me keith always had his own place um but uh even our first singer, Matt Benson, Janelle lived with me. Like, yeah, everybody kind of lived at my mom's house. And uh, she was really helpful when we started touring a lot because we had a P.O. box that was listed on all of our releases. So we would get fan mail and stuff. But, man, we toured nine months out of the year. So somebody had to check that mail, and it was my mom. She would always go and check the mail. So, yeah, it was kind of uh, sometimes people would send pictures from the road and – and say, oh, dude, it was so awesome getting so fucking high with you guys. And, you know, I was like, oh, shit, my mom's reading that. <laughs> Fuck, you know. But, um, yeah, she kind of, she was hip to what was going on on tour. Plus, she's in the music business, so she knew. Right. She's like, just as long as you guys don't get arrested or fucking, you know, don't develop bad habits, whatever, you know, just do your thing. But um, when I started the fan club, the Pogo Punk crew, uh, she used to actually send out the orders i kind of had a little um office area in the dining room that had all of our um merch and all that kind of stuff and she would actually fill the orders and start sending them out and sometimes i think she got so involved she started actually writing letters to people so there's probably some people out there that have letters from my mom like thanking them for joining the fan club and stuff <laughs> and she started she started signing it ma idol which i'm like don't don't do that anymore please you know like that's <laughs> don't start kind of wedging your way in here but she was always really cool with like letting bands stay like i said the crumbs stayed at our house all the time uh marky ramon's band stayed at our house tons of bands stayed at our house and then it kind of started to be a problem because 
some she started letting bands stay at our house while we were gone, like on the road. And I'm like, you probably shouldn't do that because it was bands I didn't even know. You know, it's like <laughs> I don't want gg and the murder junkies staying at the house you know because <laughs> my mom's cool and she would like and when she would leave for work in the morning she's like just lock up when you leave you know like no you can't fucking do that you know like we don't even know these people and plus we got all of our merch our fan club merch is sitting right there like anybody could just take whatever they want and just bail you know wow. and i don't even know who the hell they were so i don't think that ever happened everybody was pretty trustworthy but i had to put a stop to that shit like you can't just let anybody spend the night here yeah. <laughs> especially if i don't know them certainly yeah. not the murder junkies right yeah i was like uh, <laughs> that might be a bad idea uh. <laughs> so did you ever go to work with your mom um no uh mm-hmm. she worked she worked at tnn for a long time and then she works at sun now she works for the musicians union she's kind of done a lot of stuff in the business over the years but uh she's kind of like you know i don't she doesn't know anything about really the punk rock world and so she's like i'll give you advice if you ask me but i really don't know what to tell you you know what to do with your stuff other i think you're doing okay right now as it is so keep doing what you're doing yeah and i you know i learned enough about the business growing up that i i think i knew what not to do you know when we got our uh, our contract from from honest dons I invited everybody over to the house and I actually sat on the couch and I read every paragraph of the recording contract to, you know, and then explained it in layman terms to everybody so they would know what we were signing. And there was parts that I had to alter, you know, I called Fat Mike. I was like, oh, I don't like this part of the contract. And he's like, just fucking tear that page out. I don't give a shit. So (laughs) they were super, super easy to work with. You know, um, back then it was awesome because, that was kind of the heyday for fat records too. So they had kind of a fat bank account, you know, so we, uh, they started taking us on tour and we got to, that's how we learned how to shift gears onto a bigger platform, you know, because we're used to playing small bars, you know, little small shows. And all of a sudden now we're on stage in front of 2000 people and that's a whole other ball game. I mean, you might know, you might have your stuff together playing in front of 500 people, but 2000 is like a totally different beast. Yeah, and we were doing it like we did in the clubs, where it was like we don't really talk between songs; it's just bang, 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 like Ramon style, you know, just play the all the songs from the whole album and then just get the hell out, you know. And Mike was actually the one that's like, "You need to talk a little bit, like take some breaks in the set and actually let the people know who you are because you guys are real cool and funny and shit, but you don't ever talk, so they don't know anything about you." except for your songs. So I'm like, well, we're not that interesting, but <laughs> so, so we started taking little breaks in the set and Keith and Heather would usually talk to the crowd. I would be all business all the time. Like, yeah, hey, we got t-shirts for sale in the back. You know, we got, you know, <laughs> whatever. I'm all, I'm always business. And then they're like, I just farted, huh? You know, and shit like that, which yeah. the no effects, <laughs> no effects crowd loves that shit. So I don't know. Uh, there was a funny one, uh, thing where Heather was on stage and somebody, the no effects crowd, as you guys know, is pretty frat boy and douchebag jocks half yeah. the time. <laughs> and and they were like, uh, 
show us your tits or something, you know, something like that. And she's like, who wants to see my, oh no, they, they said, uh, somebody said, I want to fuck you in the ass. Oh. And so nobody heard that except her. And she gets on the mic and says, who wants to fuck me in the ass? And everybody, you know, like immediately, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> oh, that came out really wrong. Like that wasn't <laughs> what she meant to say. Right. And, you know, so <laughs> the downside of playing those kind of shows and touring with no effects and bands like that is they, the, some of that crowd started to show up to our shows in the smaller venues and it was like, no, no, I don't want you guys to like us, you know? Because <laughs> now there's like the football team is in front of me and they're all shoving the, the kids with the glasses and backpacks, you know? It's like, that's not cool. So, yeah, that's the the dark side evil of playing those bigger shows like that. Sometimes those assholes filter down and they start showing up to your shows. Right. But, you know, we never had too many problems. Nothing you couldn't handle, huh, Phil? Yeah. <laughs> you guys know about when we went to jail, right? I think I remember hearing about that. Is that is that when you guys you got in a fight at a gig and then uh I think you posted a picture like right before the cops came. Yeah. yeah, I, was, yeah. I was all like scratched up and bloody looking and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. they uh Yeah, we were playing it was uh the tour was no effects, no use for a name and us. We were the opening band, a and right build. away that that sounds like trouble waiting to happen, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, we were playing a, a club in North Carolina, and there was a bunch of asshole jock type people. They were like pushing girls to the ground and like punching people and shit. I'm like, what the fuck, dude? And you know, it was it was just getting out of control. And then somebody said that there was somebody was breaking into the vans in the parking lot. Oh, so uh, I go back there, and there's like. This dude's like trying to break the lock off on the equipment truck for no effects. And I was like, hey, motherfucker. And I jumped off the loading dock and I forearmed him. Uh, his <laughs> face his face went into the trailer hitch. Oh. And I started, I grabbed him by the hair and I just started slamming his forehead into the trailer hitch over Damn. and over. And, and I just remember him yelling, please stop kicking my ass. Oh, and so, <laughs> so I said, just get the fuck out of here or whatever, you know. And, uh, well, I thought that was the end of it, you know? So at the end of the night, we're loading out our equipment, and all of a sudden, here comes a bunch of dudes, and they're like, are you the faggot that hit the girl and shit? And I'm like, what the hell, dude? And like, you don't hit girls in North Carolina, you faggot, and all this kind of shit. And they start basically trying to kick my ass, and uh, Heather comes out the door right at the same moment, and she had a half-empty bottle of beer in her hand, and she just fucking waylays this girl who's like... Oh in the thing and smashes the beer bottle right across her face which causes all the dudes that are trying to kick my ass for punching a girl they all jumped on heather oh. and started trying to fight her so i was like wait a minute what the fuck and so uh, somebody from no use for a name went running back inside and told everybody that we were in a fight in the parking lot so out the door comes i don't know if you know the no effects guys but like limo jay walker like all their roadies and road crew guys that have been with them forever come out and, and all the no, uh, no use for a name guys and their roadies come out and dude, they've got those big ass flashlights, like those mag lights and they're yeah. just fucking crack, cracking skulls and, <laughs> and like people run off and then like 10 more guys come around the corner at that part at that point and get involved. So at one point there was like 30 people in the parking lot, just fucking, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It was like full on, a battle going on in the parking lot 
and people are laying on the ground bleeding and other people are fucking just kicking and yeah it was crazy so in the process of this going on we're still loading our equipment like we're trying to load the equipment (laughs) out and into the van while there's a riot going on all around us and eventually um I was like, let's get the fuck out of here. And we jumped in the van and our roadie, who was actually the same roadie that was with the Riverdales in that earlier story, uh, Ben convinced us to take him as our driver and all that shit. But anyway, he's behind the wheel. We're in the back. And like, everybody strip out of your fucking leather jackets and put on hoodies and shit. We're going to try to fucking be in disguise. <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, just drive, drive, get the fuck out of here. And I, I kind of looked out the front windshield and dude, it looked like a zombie movie. There was bloody people on our uh, hood, ripping our windshield wipers off and like smashing, like punching the glass and shit. And he's like, I can't get through. There's people everywhere. I said, fucking punch it. Just run them down. I don't give a shit. You know? And he's like, no, fuck, I can't, I can't do that. You know, I'll kill people. And so, uh, I was like, all right, fuck it. We're, and we had like a little sliding door between the front of the van and the back. And so I slid the door shut and I was like, everybody just fucking chill and be quiet. And so everything kind of stopped. Like we heard fists pounding all over the van. You know, it sounded like people were throwing bricks at the van or whatever. And all of a sudden everything just kind of stopped and it was real quiet. And then I hear somebody go step out of the vehicle, son. It was a fucking cops oh. showed up and, and, they were like, where's the girl, the blonde girl with the ponytails, and where's the guy with the leather jacket? Like, they, they're looking for us. And he was like, I'm not going to lie, they're in the back. And I was like, motherfucker, don't tell them that. So they, they opened up the doors and dragged us all out, and they had us, me, Matt, and Heather, and our roadie were all, like, spread eagle against the side of the van while they're patting us down and shit. And uh, I kind of looked over my shoulder and no effects his bus is just rolling out of the parking lot real slow and they're all like looking out the windows going oh fuck <laughs> and uh they stopped and fat mike got out and he goes um they're with me what do i have to do to get them out of trouble or whatever and, and they said well they're going to jail and you're gonna have to get a bail bondsman to make bail or something and he's like okay well how do i do that you know so they had to explain it to mike i felt horrible but then i realized where the fuck is keith and Keith was hiding on the no effects bus, like in their lounge or some shit. Like he fucking, <laughs> as soon as he saw trouble, he fucking hid. And it was probably he's smarter than all of us to do that. But yeah, we ended up, me and Matt got processed together and we spent the night in jail and all this kind of shit. And uh, I remember I was, I was kind of drunk, you know, at this time. And I'm sitting there handcuffed and in the station and I'm face to face with our roadie at that point and he, he wasn't working out he was straight edge and kind of uptight and it just was not working out with him being in charge of us yeah and so uh, he was ready to quit weeks before this point and so i just looked at him and i'm like so how you like touring with us so far and we're fucking handcuffed <laughs> facing each other in a state he goes i don't want to talk about that shit right now but uh so anyway yeah we spent the night in jail and they were going to release. Oh, yeah. Mike had to pay like $10,000 to get me out. Damn. And Heather was, Heather was 10000 Matt, I think Matt was 2000 <clears throat> And our roadie was 1000 So, yeah, they basically spent all their merch money getting us out of jail. Holy and, uh, shit. Yeah, and the, the cops fucked with us in the jail. And, you know, the next day they had me being processed for release or whatever. And the guy was like, so uh, what do you think is about to happen right now? And I said, well, hopefully I made bail and I'm going home. And he goes, no, nah, 
uh, you're going to the real jail until your trial. I was like, what? And he goes, nah, I'm just fucking with you. You're going home. I was like, oh, dude, <laughs> don't do that to me. But yeah, we got out and um, we had to go back for court. And uh, when we went back for court, I guess the girl that hit Heather in the face or, or Heather hit the girl in the face with the beer bottle. She tried to sue the band for a hundred thousand dollars. Like Jeez. she thought she was going to get rich quick, you know, cause right. I'm going to sue a rock band, whatever the fuck. And so, um, she made up all these crazy stories and contacted the newspaper and said that I jumped off the stage in the middle of our show and, and broke a glass over her face, which that's not what happened at all. Right. And, um, and so I think she got greedy and she tried to sue the club, and she said that the club was giving us alcohol to incite us to violence or something like that. And oh then the God. club turned around. The club turned around and said, "Wait a minute! I remember you. You're a troublemaker. You show up here all the time, starting fights and stuff." So, um, they, her lawyer basically saw loopholes in the stories that she was telling and said, "Look, if you're lying about any of this, because we countersued her." for defamation of character for saying that shit about us in the paper. And so it was basically to counteract her lawsuit. It was for a hundred thousand, just like she was trying to sue us for. And, uh, her lawyer basically said, if you're lying about any of this and you lose this case, you're going to owe them a hundred thousand dollars. And she's like, you know what? Let's just drop the whole fucking thing. <laughs> so, so she let it go. And we got that news in the middle of recording pucker up. We were in the studio and our lawyers called us and said, yeah, they dropped all the charges, and we're like, "Fuck yeah!" So you can tell we're happy as shit at that <laughs> recording. I think it just comes across even on the record that we're like in good spirits. Totally. That we weren't going going to jail, and we weren't paying a hundred thousand dollars to some asshole. So, wow. Yeah. So yeah, right after that, we were doing some other shows with No Effects, and uh, their drummer Eric Sandin, uh, when he first saw me and Matt after a long time of not seeing us, he goes. Oh, it's Felony Phil and Misdemeanor Matt, you know, <laughs> and that became our nicknames for a while. But uh, another side note of that whole thing was um, the Swingin' Utters had just got Spike Slauson from me first in the Gimme Gimme's to play bass for them, and he didn't own a bass, so he called Fat Records and said, "I need uh, a advance on some recording money to buy a bass," and they were like, "Well, we would." But our credit card is maxed out on Teen Idol's bail money. So, <laughs> which I thought that was fucking funny. Man, I, I can't believe it. What did they charge you with that was a $10,000 bond? Mine was assault with a deadly weapon inflicting serious injury. Wow. And I was like, what deadly weapon? You know, Trailer fucking age. Thunder and lightning, <laughs> the two fists. You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, they got me and Heather were both charged with assault with a deadly weapon inflicting serious injury. Uh, Matt was charged with misdemeanor assault, and our roadie was charged with being in a fray. You know, which basically, he was in a bar fight, basically. Right. So we had to do a plea deal where um, we offered to pay some hospital bills for some people in order to get the charges dropped to just misdemeanor assault. Wow. So which which they did. And because of that, and for anybody listening in Canada, this is why Teen Idols have not played Canada is uh other than with the Mr. T experience and a couple of shows with the Lillingtons, we're not allowed to be in Canada. Wow. Um, we tried to go to Canada with the Swing and Utters and we also tried again with Tilt and both times at the border, they stopped us, and our, like our profiles came up, and they were like, "No, you guys are flagged. Like you can't come into the country." And I was like, "Why the fuck not?" And they were, 
they were like, oh, you have felony assault on your criminal record. And I was like, no, we got it dropped to misdemeanor. It's, it should be. And they said, well, in Canada, there is no misdemeanor assault. It's just assault. Like, there is no misdemeanor. So they said, you are banned from Canada for a minimum of 10 years. And I was like, 10 years? You know how long that is in the career of a fucking punk band? Like, you might as well say for life, you know? <laughs> right. And so um, recently, my work offered to send me to a training course at a place in Canada, and I had to bring all this up to them. Like, well, <laughs> I might not be able to get in. And they were like, well, check it out. You know, look up the information online. Maybe it's been long enough now. Because, I mean, that was 20 years ago. It was in 98, so 21 years ago. And uh, so I looked it up, and like the maximum amount of time is like 15 years if you. It was like aggravated sexual assault on a Mountie with a firearm. It's like 15. <laughs> that's 15 years. Like you could stick a shotgun up a cop's ass, and you still only get 15. So I'm like, damn. damn. So I think I'm good. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's been long enough. But they kind of have a scam at the border where if you have anything on your record, they they do what they call a rehabilitation tax, and they can charge you like three hundred dollars just to come into the country because of something you did twenty years ago. Wow! And then if you know, they consider you rehabilitated for two weeks, and after that you have to pay it again. Yeah, you know, it's like some kind of weird shit like that. Wow! Sounds like a racket. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like not really been worth it to even try to get into Canada, which totally sucks because I know there's a lot of people, you know, that like the band and stuff up there that I wish we could have played for. Where did that happen at, Phil? That was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So did you guys ever play there again after that? I, we did. Yeah, we did. And <laughs> I was fucking nervous, dude. Like the whole time, whole time we were there, I'm looking at the crowd going, is this, is this the motherfucker that I hit? Like I can't, you know, you can't tell. Because it was the middle of the night when we did the fight and shit, so I don't even know who was involved. You know, it could be any random person. It could be somebody with a death vendetta against me. You know, <laughs> and so we had to tell security. We didn't. We've never played that club again, but we have played in the town, and uh, whatever the venue was, we played the next time. I told all the security staff the story. You know about what happened. I said, you, I, I need somebody watching the parking lot the entire time. Like, somebody needs to watch our vehicle because I don't want my tires slashed or something, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, so security, nothing happened. Like, security was totally tight, but nobody reported anything crazy. So, yeah, I, I think it was because it wasn't a no-effect show. It was just us headlining our own smaller show. And none of the crazies came out to that one. It was just normal people. <laughs> but, wow. But, yeah, I was... I've always been worried, like in the back of my mind, that somebody's gonna sneak up behind me and clock me in the head someday for shit I did 20 years ago. <laughs> Is it that girl that Heather hit in the face with the bottle? They told us that when she was being processed, the the guy at the jail was yelling at Heather, going, "Do you realize there's a girl in the hospital that might die tonight because of what you did?" And she's like, "I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do nothing." You know, so like <laughs> she denied everything the whole time, which was smart. You know, she yeah. didn't admit any guilt. But, yeah, they said that that girl apparently had to have 12 staples in her face, like, diagonally. Damn. Yeah, so she's probably looking like Frankenstein for the rest of her life. <laughs> every every time she looks in the mirror, she's got to think about that shit. But, uh, Dude, Pogo Park crew will she, dish out those like, lumps. Yeah, she started the shit, man, you know, so that's what you get. But, um, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of people that don't really know us and don't know a lot of that shit think that it's some kind of act. Like, well, oh yeah, they are always talking about switchblades and shit, and it's like that shit's real. You know, <laughs> right. like it's not a fucking made-up fantasy story. Right. Did an interview with a kid in Florida once, and he was a total jackass tool. Like I don't know what his problem was. He thought we were some kind of joke band or something, and he's like, "Oh, okay, so you guys are like greasers and shit. Uh, so who's got the switchblade?" And I fucking reached in my back pocket and I flipped it out and I put it up to his neck and I said, "I do, motherfucker." Interview's over, and we walked off. And he was like, "Oh shit! Like that? They're for real? Like that's not a, a gimmick, you know?" He had no idea who he was fucking with. <laughs> Somebody from the pop punk board years ago said I was like a fucking ca- uh, cartoon character. And I was like, bitch, my fucking life is an adventure movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? I guess saying make believe and shit. Uh, that's so cool. Like not long after that, I got put in the hospital. I don't know if you guys remember that shit happening. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I broke up a gang rape that was in, happening in a parking lot. These dudes were trying to shove this girl in a car. And I walked up. I just happened to walk up on it as I was leaving a bar, and uh, I broke that shit up. Like I startled them for, I yelled at them, like "Leave that chick alone, motherfuckers!" or something, you know, whatever. And she ran over to me, and as I was talking to her to see if she was okay, they fucking blindsided me, and uh, three dudes knocked me onto one of those parking blocks and broke four of my ribs, and Damn. they stomped the shit out of me, like they were stomping my chest and collapsed one of my lungs, Jesus. and. Uh, <sighs> Yeah, it was it was a brutal fucking beatdown, and it was like, dude, if I had seen them coming, I might have had a chance, but they totally like blindsided me, and they ended up ripping the uh, side mirror off the car and smashing me in the face with it. With a, I had a bunch of broken glass in my face and shit. Fuck. And uh, yeah, they they were like, you you have three seconds to get the fuck out of here, or we're gonna kill you. But as they were stomping on me, I the girl that was in trouble was just standing there watching me with her hand over her mouth, like, in shock. And I said, fucking run, dude. What are you doing watching this? Like, go. And so she took off, and they beat the shit out of me, basically. And uh, I somehow, in the ma- in the middle of getting beat up, I managed to get my keys out of my pocket and open the door to the car and get in and lock myself in. And uh, I was, like, trying to dial 911 on my cell phone, and I hear this tapping on the window, and I look up, and it's, the dude's got my keys because I think I left them in the door when I got oh, in. No. I must have left. And so he's like, "Who you calling, motherfucker?" And I'm like, "Man, I just want to get out of here. Just, I just, I'm just trying to leave." And and so he goes, "Roll your window down." And so I rolled my window down, and he threw my keys as hard as he could right in my face. And he's like, "You got three seconds to get the fuck out of here. Or we're gonna drag you out of that car and beat you to death." So I started the car and I got about two blocks away and I couldn't breathe anymore because one of my lungs was collapsed and I pulled over at a White Castle and I called 911 and an ambulance came and got me. But yeah, I was uh, I was pretty much bedridden for about three months after that because yeah, they they fucked me up bad, dude. And they never caught the guys like they're they've never been caught. So wow. But uh. Yeah, that sucked because I I was that happened in Nashville and I was living in Chicago at the time and I came down to visit my mom for Thanksgiving and that's when the shit happened. So like I was stranded at my mom's house for three months 
trying to recoup, you know. Wow. And during that during that time, the queers came and saw me, which I thought was cool. They're the only visitor. Well, Mass and, and his ex-girlfriend came down and visited me, but um, Joe and Adam from The Leftovers and Dave Swain all stopped by to visit, see how I was doing and shit. So that was cool. Dude, totally. That's nuts. But, like, right after that is when I – no, it was right right before that I played some shows with the Cobains which uh, a lot of people probably don't even know that that ever happened. Uh, we were doing a Teen Idol show uh, with the reunited Teen Idols back in 2009, and um, the Cobains were going to be our opening act, and Marky called me the day before the show, and he was like, dude, we have to cancel. Like, we can't play the show. And I'm like, well, what the fuck happened? He goes, our bass player quit. That's Jason. Uh, he's not in the band anymore, so we don't have a bass player. And I'm like, fuck that shit. I'll play bass. And he's like, what? <laughs> you don't know any of our songs. I'm like, fucking send me your songs. Like, send me everything that you want to play on a set list on a CD. Or, you know, like, I, no, it wasn't even a CD. I think he emailed me the, the files or something. And so uh, the night before the show, I just stayed up learning all their songs. Uh, and we never rehearsed. So I just showed up at the gig. And he was like, dude, are you sure? You, you know, is this going to work? I'm like, fuck yeah, I got your shit. And so we we played the show, and I I, didn't, I don't think I missed a note, and I was singing backup vocals and everything, and uh, we had so much so much fun that we're like, uh, they had scheduled another show the next night with the Beatnik Termites in Cleveland. I'm like, fuck it, I'll jump in the van, we'll do that one too. And he's like, really, fuck. And so yeah, I ended up being in the Cobains for like two days, and and that was fun. Um, Marky's a good dude, and yeah. and we were we were in uh, in Cleveland, and he had heard about the chili dog eating contest that we did with the riptides me and mass and uh, that was on youtube a while back i don't know if you guys ever saw that i've never seen I, it no I, I can't i think somebody took it down but it was uh bob goblin from the riptides had put that up a long time ago basically i had this fucking stupid idea that i could eat five foot long um coney dogs in five minutes and so so we decided let's fucking make it a contest. And so we go, there's a, a place down the street from Sonic Iguana called Dog and Suds. And we each, there was four of us in the contest and we each got five foot long <laughs> chili cheese dogs and a large root beer. And they're like, all right, go. And we just started fucking chowing down. And man, it's a funny video. If you ever see it, like <laughs> at the end, me and master neck and neck right at the end. I, I still don't really know who won, but, uh, yeah, it was intense. So Marky had seen that, and he, he was like, We're, I want to do that same challenge, but with White Castle hamburgers. I was like, <laughs> all right, fuck it. Let's do it. And so in the middle of the night after the show, we took a cab to White Castle. Like, he called it a, a taxi, and we took a taxi to White Castle, and we get to the drive through and he goes, I want 100 fucking White Castle hamburgers. <laughs> and we're like, whoa. They call it the the crate. It's like a secret yeah. menu, a secret menu item at White Castle. There's a hundred hamburgers, and they call it a crate. So he orders the crate. Dude, we sat in that drive-through for like thirty minutes <laughs> while they made. And the guy's got the meter running. Marky's like, "Fuck it, just keep the meter running." You know, whatever. And so we finally get the hundred hamburgers, and we get back to Pat Termite's house because we we played with them and we were staying at his house, and we're in the kitchen. There's a picture somewhere. Marky has a picture of us eating the hamburgers. And dude, like three hamburgers in, 
I got a whole fucking White Castle lodged in my throat, and I was choking. Oh. Like I couldn't, I couldn't breathe in or out. And I was just like, he was like, dude, he looks at me, and I'm starting to turn purple. And he's like, holy shit, dude, I think you're gonna die. And I was like, fuck. And I, I just reached in my throat and pulled it out. And I'm like, I'm done. I can't fucking, you know, I'm not gonna die for this challenge or whatever. <laughs> so we we ended up with a shitload of hamburgers that nobody ate. And so the next day we drove back to Chicago from Cleveland, man, that was the fucking worst smell because <laughs> we, we brought the hamburgers with us and we we're still eating them. Like the next day, they're day old, you know, they've Belly been bobbers. sitting out all night long. And so we ate those the whole ride back and man, it smelled so bad in there. But, um, <laughs> but I had a lot of fun playing. I only did two shows with those guys, but they were a lot of fun. That's awesome. But yeah, when I was learning those songs, yeah, you know, I, I stayed up late the night before the show, learning all their shit. And Pete uh, from the Methadones the next day goes, "Dude, you've lived with me for six years. I don't think I've ever heard you practice." And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't practice because, like, you know, he works for the phone company. Like, I've never seen you install a phone line either. You know, it's like." <laughs> It's what I do for work. So when I'm not at work, I'm not fucking playing my guitar, you know. Right. So yeah, he was. <laughs> he thought that was real weird. I'd lived with him for six years, and he'd never heard me play like at all in my room or anything. <laughs> yeah. So what made you uh, get get out of the whole? I mean, other than you having a kid, but you just um just didn't want to do recording anymore. Uh, really, the the industry has changed a lot with the home recording stuff it's kind of yeah. kill it's killing the studio business you know like really bad uh and the budgets aren't there anymore from the record labels like as an example i think the first yeah the self-titled teen idol teen idols record i think our budget was ten thousand dollars to record that record wow which we tracked in like six days in chicago but uh and the Pucker Up album, we, we upped it quite a bit because we had bail money to pay for. <laughs> and <laughs> and they took that out of the recording budget. So I think that was like twenty five grand to do that record. And a bunch of that was uh, bail money, and we got a new drum set and a new bass. But yeah, so, uh, so the budgets from the label aren't there anymore. So they can't pay thousands of dollars to go to a professional studio anymore. Just because every you know people steal music, nobody's buying it, so mm-hmm. it's a losing, it's a losing business. Unless you're making vinyl that's collectible, you know people want that. That still hasn't changed in our bubble, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. speaking of Pucker Up, we're at the like 20 year anniversary of Pucker Up, right? Yeah, it's hard to believe. I told Beefface that the other day, and he was like, "What? 20 fucking years? Are you kidding me?" Yeah, that's insane. So bad, we're just a town to never have 
During that session, uh, Mass had a handheld video, VHS videotape recorder, you know, like camera. Yeah. And so he, he, I have tons of footage of us during the Pucker Up sessions, like tracking the guitars, tracking the uh-huh. vocals, all that shit. And I was telling B-Face, like right at the end of that video, the last day that we're there, um, Groovy Ghoulies come in, like, because they were recording Fun in the Dark. That was the next project that was lined up. So there was a day that we overlapped, and I've got video footage of me and B Face hanging out on the couch, and Kepi and Roach are there, and Heather's there, and like we're all just kind of hanging out, telling tour stories and shit. It was like that's kind of a cool. It's not a very long piece of footage, but it's kind of awesome knowing that that was when Pucker Up was ending and Fun in the Dark was beginning. Yeah, right there at the same that weird overlap. He's like, "You have footage of that?" I was like, "Yeah," because Mass was always sneaky with that video recorder we didn't half the time we didn't know he was recording us that's awesome <laughs> i'd love to see yeah. that kind of stuff yeah one of these days i gotta transfer that shit and put it on youtube or something yeah. people would eat it up man i got tons of that shit hey so what made you you know like i remember when pucker up first came out i'm listening to it and i think the record's over and then all of a sudden there's all these like outtakes <laughs> oh, <laughs> All that weird shit yeah. fucking around, yeah. yeah. Well, one of them, one of them is a song called Twenty Three Lockdown," and that is about our fight in Winston Salem, um, where we got arrested. Because right. when we were in jail, there was an outbreak of tuberculosis when we were in the jail, and so we were confined to our cells for twenty three hours a day. That's why I called it Twenty Three Lockdown." Oh, okay. But um, um, that was originally made for that uh, short music for short people fat records comp of yeah, 101 yeah. bands doing 30 second songs that was our submission and mike rejected it he's like that doesn't fucking sound like you guys <laughs> at all like it sounds like some screamo hardcore band or something so do something else didn't you do like so, ketchup soup or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so I, I wrote ketchup soup as, as like something else for that comp it may be hard when it's just me and you Hope makes a meal when we eat ketchup soup I know it's alright, we some wise man is fit for dinner I promise you, I'll be on Sunday It's running, nobody, that show the shows is running It may be hard, but it's just me and you Hope makes a meal when we eat ketchup soup It may be hard, but it's just me and you Hope makes a meal when we eat ketchup soup And uh, I have a lot of video footage of us actually recording that which was a bitch to record because it starts off with just vocals and we never used a click track in the studio. So we kind of recorded a scratch vocal and then Matt had to just like come in, you know, so it's all, it's almost done kind of live the way we recorded that. So it was kind of a pain in the ass with not having a click track to uh, sing to in the very beginning. 
Gotcha. But, but that's studio shit that a lot of people probably don't care about. <laughs> I think people think it's super interesting. But, but yeah, all that all that extra weird shit was uh, outtakes from different parts of the songs. Yeah. As we started as we started to mix the songs, we realized wait, what the fuck is going on in the background right there? And we would solo out like the vocals. And sometimes like Keith would be in the middle of a burp, like right before he would start singing. And she was like, what the fuck is that? It was really weird. <laughs> and Heather's like singing different lyrics to be funny on purpose. Hey, Wayne, uh, Wayne Griffith told me that, um, the Heather was singing blurple dick because of <laughs> Zach Damon made a, like a prank phone call to some sex line or something. It was actually, it wasn't Zach Damon. <laughs> it was Matt Leonard. But oh, yeah, okay. Matt, Matt Leonard used to, he made a prank call to some sex line. And he was going, "Yeah, I got a big blurple dick. It's so black, it's blurple." You know, like he was saying the crazy <laughs> shit. You know, and so she thought that was really funny, and so she said, uh, "I think it was on Test Tube Teens or something." She goes, "Blurple dick." Blurple dick. Piece of shit. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like singing something and I said, and I fucked up the last part. You know, it's like these are all like little studio trails that were faded down in the actual mix, but they're actually still there on the real tracks. <laughs> so we took all that shit and just kind of added it at the end. And a lot of people, like, we were the first band at Sonic Iguana to use um, auto tune. Which is, I know, it's a controversial subject now, but um, at the time nobody had used it, so we were the guinea pigs. Mass had this new toy and he wanted to try it out, and he didn't really have mastered the way to use it and make it invisible, and so you can hear it a lot on a, a lot of our backup vocals because he was really like maxing it out because it it does sound perfectly in pitch, you know, but. It's too much, you know, it's, it's too in pitch. And a lot of people didn't even realize that that was auto-tune until they heard those little outtakes at the end. And they're like, wait, mm-hmm. why does that sound like a robot right there? Like, what yeah. the fuck is that? <laughs> I remember and it was like too. right about the same time that Cher song came out. You know? Yep. <laughs> and so, uh, actually, Fat Mike asked me about it. He goes, what were you using on that record? Like, dude, your vocals sound amazing. And like, is there some kind of trick that I don't know about? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's auto-tune, dude. And he was like, what the fuck is that? So, yeah, I had to tell Fat Mike what auto-tune was all about. <laughs> so if you had to pick out of all the Teen Idols LPs, what's your favorite? Man, people have, asked, people have asked <laughs> me that before. And I have to say it's like picking your favorite child. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's really hard because I wrote all of them. So it's kind of like... Well, I'll say which one is my least favorite, and that would be nothing to prove. Mine too. That one, yeah, that's that record sucks. Um, <laughs> and the reason it sucks, and it's totally my fault, is I let everybody else have a hand in that record. Where the first three was 100% me, like being a dictator and saying you're gonna sing this and you're gonna play this, and it has to be this way and this speed and all that shit. Like I was really kind of like a control freak on all that shit. And uh, the last record, I kind of felt like people were getting pissed because they weren't involved in the recording process as much as they wanted to be especially because they'd been in the band for years by that point and i'm like all right i'll let you guys have a hand like submit some songs to me and i'll work on them whatever and i really kind of let everybody else too many cooks spoiled the pot on that one i think is the main problem and uh i really regret 
I regret that shit. Plus, Keith's not on there either, right? Right, yeah. Keith had been kicked out of the band by that point, and we had a new singer called Kevin, Kevin Serziga, who is actually the lead singer of Squirt Gun right now. So uh, that's what he's doing these days. And uh, Why did you kick out Keith? So here's the story about that. So, <laughs> okay, so Trey Cool from Green Day, his ex-wife uh, started dating Keith. And Keith moved out to California and moved into Trey's old house and like kind of started acting like Trey's money was his money and shit, you know, oh, and wow. his, his ego kind of <laughs> got out of control. And, and both of them together were really a bad combination because it was like Sid and Nancy. Like they're, they're very bad people when they're together. And Trey's daughter Ramona was, there at the time and she actually used to come on the road with us actually in the midnight picture show video she's the little girl in the front row as trey cool's daughter oh wow and uh, and, yeah yeah that's trey cool's daughter ramona and she used to travel with us and like hang out and when keith and and her mom were kind of like doing their thing i felt really bad for her like as a little kid because they were into heavy drinking and shit you know and i'm like I just kind of automatically became the babysitter. And so I would hang out with her and we would play Barbies and stuff, you know, like, cause I didn't want, I didn't want her to see her mom acting like that. You know, you know what I mean? So right. I remember, uh, sleeping on their couch one time we were all staying at that house and I wake up to her. She was five years old at the time and she's shaking me uh, awake and I'm like, what's up? What are you doing? And she's like, I need help getting the chocolate syrup off the top shelf. And I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm making waffles. I was like, uh, are you, does your mom know that you're doing this? And she was, yeah, I do it all the time. So, so I had to help her get the chocolate syrup. I'm like, whatever. But, um, uh, I just kind of kept her, I, I tried as much as I could when I was around to shield her from the debauchery that was going on. And, uh, things kind of came to a head in Japan because she, showed up on the tour unannounced like nobody knew that she was coming and she brought her kid to japan and we're like what the fuck you know like you don't bring a five-year-old to japan unannounced on a tour with a punk band you know it's just kind of weird but um there was a lot of drama a lot of fighting a lot of drunk fighting and stuff and we did the the split with the japanese band called spread called it found a voice and it was kind of like it's kind of a monumental thing for an American band and a Japanese band to kind of like come together on a, on a release and it was a co-release. And so every day uh, when we were in Japan, the singer for spread would kind of, and Japan's weird. I don't know if you guys know about this, but whenever a band plays in between songs, the crowd will like do three or four claps and then they're just dead silent. Uh, it's like a respect thing. Yeah. Like they're waiting. And so when somebody starts talking, it's like you could hear a pin drop between songs and so at one point of the of the set spread singer would start saying all this stuff in japanese i never knew what he was saying and so eventually i asked our translator what does he say every day right there and he said oh it's a very special speech that he does about how uh, the scene is uniting all over the world or now we have a japanese band and an american band coming together and making a record together and all you know it was like this kind of uh unity speech that he was doing well in the middle of one of those speeches keith's girlfriend screams 
play a fucking song shut up and play a song it's like so oh, obnoxious <laughs> and it was just so rude and so disrespectful i'm like oh fuck dude i just wanted to crawl under a table and die at that point like that's so nasty and so um we had all these problems and they got in a big fight the last day we were all supposed to go to a uh, like a celebratory dinner to celebrate the tour and the, the promoter who had booked all the shows was hosting this thing well Keith and his girlfriend got into some big ass fight at the club with each other and Keith stormed off so he wasn't even there at the celebratory dinner which made us look like assholes like we don't have the respect to even come and have this guy's dinner with him or whatever right. and so we're sitting there in the middle of this dinner and our, our translator gets a phone call from the club that we had just left saying there is a American woman sleeping behind the bar and there is a small child wandering around looking for their mother. I'm like, Oh fucking a dude. It was like a goddamn horror show. And, and, uh, the translator told me later, the promoter told him if they hadn't worked with us in the past, then we would not be invited back to Japan. Like it was really disrespectful and bad. So the next day we're flying home. We're in the airport and, you know, we all fly coach and shit. We're nobody special. And we're fucking, we're in line getting our tickets. And she comes in like a train wreck tornado going, fuck that shit. We're not riding coach. We're fucking first class, baby. And all this shit. And so she upgrades Keith's ticket only <laughs> to first class Damn. while the rest of us ride coach. I'm like, that asshole fucking just ruined our tour, made us look like dickheads. And now he's flying first class. Fuck that shit. And so, um, <laughs> So I called Mass from the airport in L.A. And I was like, hey, do you know any singers that have come through the studio recently that might be good? Because I'm fucking at my wits end. And he was like, actually, yeah. And he had a couple of people that he requested. You know, I, I He sent me CDs and shit of the people. And Kevin was the one we picked. But yeah, I basically told, I gave Keith an ultimatum. And I said, I, I don't give a fuck if we're playing a barbecue in your backyard. She's not invited. You know, like, you can't bring that element into our shows anymore and he was like you can't fucking say that man that's my fiance i'm like you're gonna fucking marry her oh hell no yeah so <laughs> and that was that was the last that was it like i we went with a different singer after that and and everybody that knew all of them would ask me you know like well how long do you think that relationship's gonna last now that he's not in the band i said i give it three months and they're like three months now man at least six months to a year now, within about three months, she came home one day and was like, what the fuck are you doing in my house? And he's like, what? She goes, you're a fucking loser. Get out of here. And she kicked him out, and he yeah. ended up moving back to Nashville and had to live with his little brother that was sleeping on his floor or something. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, kind of a mistake on everybody's part <laughs> because I really, I really wish he would have got his shit together and stayed with us because we could have done more records i think you know yeah mm -hmm. and then uh fat mike told me that you know keith went on to be uh in the lighting industry he was the front of house lighting guy at house of blues in chicago he moved up to chicago and stayed there and uh no effects was playing at house of blues one day and i went down to hang out and keith was there and i hadn't seen him since he got kicked out of the band so it was like a weird meeting and we ended up hanging out and talking about old times and everything was good and Fat Mike ended up taking us out to a bar after the show and talked us into reforming. He's like, I think that you guys have more records in you. You're a great band, all this kind of stuff. And 
just you know contact the other guys and if you guys get together original lineup give me a good album i'll put you guys on fat and i was like fuck we should do this like we should really fucking think this through so we contacted matt and he was on board and then we contacted heather and she was like you motherfuckers are dead to me i hate you all this kind of shit so uh when she backed out and didn't want to have anything to do with it matt backed out too because uh, he didn't want to do it unless it was the original four so we uh we got some other members and did the reunion shows out to Insubfest in 09 and uh, kind of kept that lineup going until our last show in May of 2010. Yeah. Damn. So Yoko ruined another band. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was it was definitely a Yoko situation. <laughs> Damn. But I don't Crazy. know if you guys were at that Insubfest that I was we not. did the um it's not good. Like <laughs> uh we were kicking ass all the way up until that show like uh the night before we played at bernie's in columbus and it was one of the best shows i've played in a long long time there's a lot of really cool pictures of the crowd just going crazy and we had a blast and then the next night it all all the bad stuff came back and i started remembering why keith was let go the first time uh he started hanging out with dillinger four in their dressing room and about five minutes before we were going to go on stage, somebody comes up and goes, hey, you need to go check on your singer. And I was like, why? What's up? And they're like, you just need to go see this. And so I went in. Keith's got his shirt <laughs> off. He's got a fucking almost empty bottle of whiskey in his hand. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck? And he was like, oh, hey, motherfucker, what's up? And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, dude, how, how drunk are you? And he's like, no, man, I'm straight as a string and shit. I'm like, no, motherfucker, you are wasted. <laughs> and I had to like pull him into the bathroom and have a talk with him and shit. He was like, I want to thank you for giving me the chance to do this again. I'm like, man, you're fucking it up, man. You're fucking wasted. And yeah, so we played that show and it was, I have the rough audio from that and it's not good. Like it's real bad. Actually, one of the worst <laughs> that I've ever heard. And uh, so later, I made Keith listen to that as punishment. And I, I made him listen. I made him listen to it in the studio with just his vocal mic soloed. So that's all he heard was his own voice. And it. He was like, "Dude, I sound retarded." I'm like, "Yeah." And you looked retarded <laughs> on stage. Like you're, he ran out on stage and tripped over the drum riser and fell down and like rolled and then jumped up. You know, it's like. <laughs> what the fuck dude you know this is why you were gone the first time you know that that kind of shit and so Damn. i just decided to go out before it got any worse you know so we just did a couple more shows after that and called it a day you have any contact with any of them i still talk to keith um you know he simmered for a couple of years and he's a dad now he's got twins and uh i still talk to matt once in a while he's got some kids but he's playing drums for less than jake so uh, he he keeps pretty busy doing that. Yeah. Uh, Heather, I think, is in Florida with some kids. I don't really talk to her. Like we, we're not really on speaking terms. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of where it's at at this point. You know, so a lot of people are like, "Oh yeah, Tino's reunion." I'm like, "Yeah, we tried that once. Not a good idea. <laughs> it's, it's really not a good idea. I mean, it's it's sad because we're all still alive. You know, there shouldn't be a reason that we shouldn't be able to do it, but there just is. You know." Yeah, too much bad blood or whatever. But um, so yeah, now that now that my kids a little older, I've been thinking about dabbling a little bit, and maybe I'll do it right this time, and I'll do the lead vocals. There you go. That way, 
that way I don't I can correct the mistakes from a long time ago. <laughs> man, that'd be awesome. I'd love to hear some new songs from you, man. Yeah, Dude, uh, call up Mass, start up Monkey Boy. Ah, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> he's uh, he's all set with his lineup that he's got now. So, but yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know what I'll do, but uh, definitely I'm dipping my toe back in the pool. You know what I mean? That's cool. awesome. But today, actually today, I just got a new amp off of uh, eBay. I got a Marshall, which I've never owned a Marshall. I always just played Joe's Marshall when I was on guitar in the Queers, but so I'm. Obviously, it's more than just a, a passing idea. Yeah. Like I'm spending money on new gear, so that's what kind of Marshall? Like 800, 900? It's it's a nine hundred because I wanted the dual channels. Yeah, but uh, I love an eight hundred the way they sound. Actually, I think an eight hundred is what I used on the first Teen Idols self-titled album. It was Ben Weasel's amp that he. So I don't know how he got it, but it used to belong to Exodus. You know, the, the metal band, yeah. Exodus? <laughs> yeah, one of the guitar players from Exodus sold his JCM 800, and Ben bought it, and that's the amp that I used on the first Teen Idols record. Wow. Which is totally weird. Like, you know, being an old metal guy that I was, I never dreamed I would be playing on Exodus's amps and shit, you know, right. <laughs> which is pretty awesome. But... If you want to get into some gear talk for a second, I know Jody likes yeah, the gear I talk. Yeah, I like the gear. But, um, I'll tell you the gear that I used on every Teen Idols record. Okay. Because uh, the first one was the JCM 800 Exodus amp. Uh, pucker up and full leather jacket. It kind of became my go-to thing that I did for a long time was uh, Soldano Decatone. It's yeah. a 100-watt Soldano. is basically the SLO circuit yeah. uh, amplifier and on one channel is that and on the other channel is a mesa boogie dual rectifier really so those are like metal amps you know what i mean those for metal bands but with my rig down a little bit though they they yeah yeah well i I played my rick on everything so in the at sonic iguana so that's it doesn't sound jangly or you know like a power (laughs) pop band that's 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 my rick through a mesa boogie and a soldano dual channels like panned hard left and hard right right and that, that's my tone except the last album the nothing to prove um i started playing a mesa mark four rack mount head and that's the same amp that el jefe uses in no effects and so um if i play a no effects song on that it sounds just like him it's so weird how that amp has its own unique tone it's like the no effects amp or whatever so i use that on the nothing to prove album as one of my channels and then the soldano on the other that's awesome that's it, and and bass was always just direct. Like really? We didn't amp, we don't amp in the studio, so it was uh, Heather's Rick straight into the board. I mean, I think it might have gone through some compression and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's no amp involved on the bass. That's just her actual bass guitar. Wow. Did you so, uh, did you use those cool mics in the studio? Not in the studio. <laughs> I think we were using a, a Neumann U87 on the vocals. Yeah professional yeah are you using one of those mics now no i actually don't have them anymore um (laughs) really well i I might have i think i have one of them but i'm not sure if it works but uh those things are brutal as hell dude like i don't (laughs) i don't recommend those because in the way they look cool as hell they, they do look awesome uh, in the later years, we started bringing our own sound man with us on when we were playing the big places with Les and Jake and No Effects and stuff. We have to kind of have our own sound man to dial that shit in. 
And uh, he got them dialed in and EQ'd just right where they sounded good and didn't feed back and stuff. But when you're at the mercy of a, a rookie sound man in a dive bar, those things feed back like crazy, especially at the volume that we play. We play really fucking loud. So um, those things are a nightmare to deal with on the stage for the sound guy. Plus, they will fuck you up if you get hit in the face. <laughs> right. Like, uh, <laughs> I have scars to this day, but right between my eyes, um, we were playing at a, a record store in the basement of a record store in Cleveland, and uh, some kids were dancing and they fell into my mic stand. And we we didn't use the boom stands; we used straight metal stands with the big round metal yeah. base. And that shit hit me right between the eyes. I was playing a guitar solo, so I was kind of looking down, and that shit smacked me right in the face. And it all I remember is I saw stars. You know, like it was like <laughs> blasted, and then it looked like somebody turned a faucet on in my head, and just red liquid was just gushing in a faucet stream from between my eyes, and uh, I, it stunned me for a minute. It's like getting hit in the face with a baseball bat, you know. And um, yeah. the rest of the band knew something was wrong. Matt told me he's like, "Yeah, I knew something happened because you started to suck like real bad." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, because I didn't. It stunned me. I didn't even know what the fuck I was playing at one point because it was like I, I didn't get knocked out, but it was damn close, you know. Wow. And uh, I ended up having to go. Somebody snapped a picture of me like right after that. I I wiped it off with a towel, and then it started bleeding again. Somebody took a picture, and I, that picture is pretty gory. Um, <laughs> looks like the cover of a Dwarves album or something. Sam Hain. Yeah, yeah, the Sam Sam Hain record. <laughs> but uh, so. Since we were at a record store, they didn't have ice or anything to, like, to put on it. All they had was tall boys of PBR. So they gave me a tall boy of PBR to put on my face. And that was the first time that um, anybody but me drove our van because our van was a, a big-ass moving van. I don't know if you guys remember that from back when you saw us live. But yeah, I had an old – it was a rider truck, like the rider yeah, moving like – like U-Haul. Yeah. yeah, it was a box truck, and the thing was 25 feet from bumper to bumper and 10 feet high, 8 feet wide. So it's a big-ass, huge vehicle, and nobody could drive it but me. you know. And so I couldn't drive because I was fucking blasted in the face, so Matt took the wheel and drove me to the emergency room. And, man, they, they had a funny look on their face because I walk in covered in blood with a tall boy of PBR on my head. And they're like, <laughs> oh, shit, Friday night in Cleveland, you know, so... <laughs> But yeah, they they couldn't do anything for me other than just put like butterfly stitches to hold the skin together, and then uh, the guy gave me a business card for a plastic surgeon, which I never fucking did anything about it. But uh, the next couple of days, both of my eyes turned dark black, purple, you know, like two big ass black eyes, and it took the skin off the top of my nose and busted both of my lips. So I looked rough and. I just remember pulling up. I pulled up to a toll booth, and you know, I was driving. I look over, and the toll operator's like, "Holy shit!" You know, like what the fuck? I said, "Yeah, you should see the, you should see the other guy." You know, and it yeah. was, made a joke out of it and shit. But yeah, that shit was gnarly, man. Damn. And Keith got Damn. his front tooth knocked out with one of those mics. No shit. He's got a he's got a fake front tooth, and it's actually yeah, it happened in England. And uh, he's, we were playing a really darkly, dimly lit club, and he stepped off the front lip of the stage and fell into the crowd that was, like, dancing, and he fucking just ate the mic. And it, uh, he got real pissed and ran off the stage. I'm like, what the fuck happened? So I went to go check on him, and he's like, look. I'm like, 
what? And it's like a little bit of a chip. And he goes, no, look. And he pushed his tooth, and you could see a, a crack near his gum, and his Ooh. front tooth was just hanging by the nerve. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. So Damn. the next day, we went to the dentist, and he just told the dentist, fucking just take it out. And he's like, well, I think, you know, the nerve's there. We can save it. We can give you, like, something. And he goes, no, fucking just take it out. <laughs> he was like, he was mad. <laughs> and so uh, one of our friends that was in another band that was touring with us actually videotaped it, and it's at the ending credits of that uh, video comp on Fat Records that Midnight Picture Show is on. Yeah. If you watch the very end when they roll the credits at the end, it's like a split screen of Keith in the dentist chair having his tooth removed, and they're like shooting him up with a big needle in the roof of his mouth, and he's like, ah! And, yeah, and then they're, you know, they take it out, and he just like sits up with missing a front tooth, and they're like, well, how do you feel? And he goes, I need some booze. You know, but, um, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, so they basically, to fix that, they just kind of spackled over the crack where his tooth was and then carved little lines to look like other teeth. And he went with that. It was like a partial thing until they could get him like a fake tooth or whatever. Yeah. And he recorded the entire Full Leather Jacket album with no front tooth, <laughs> which was a bitch in the studio. Any any song that has an S, it was, yeah. like, a whis- it was like a whistle every time. And so like he was getting frustrated. He was like, oh, we got to do that again. And he whistled. And he's like, God damn it. But yeah, so he was missing a front tooth on that album. <laughs> damn. <laughs> Yet another crazy story. Typical uh, Teen Idol show, though. Yeah, yeah, shit happens. <laughs> Someone gets hurt, fight. Yeah, we got a fucking, we got in a fight in Kent, Ohio, once with a biker gang. They, <laughs> we were playing this dive bar, and this this gang comes in. And they look like members of ZZ Top, like they have the big long fucking beards and shit, <laughs> and they're like punching kids and shoving kids to the ground and just they took over the club you know and there must have been like six or seven of them and they just kind of i think they knew the owner and that was like their clubhouse where they hung out or something and they did punk shows once in a while and these guys just came in i remember they brought a cooler and like an ice chest full of beer into the bar which i'm like what the fuck you can't do that you (laughs) know they like they made their own rules or whatever and we're up there, like, and this was like right after the butterfly stitches and the black eye. So I look like a prize fighter that lost, you know, like I'm up there on stage already beat to hell. And one of them comes up and starts fucking with Heather, like while we're playing. And he, he, I guess he grabbed the neck of her bass and muted all of the strings. And so she used the body of the bass and just cracked the dude under the chin and fucking just about knocked him out and like, all hell broke loose at that point, you know, it's like you just fucking jacked a biker with your base hard, you know, and they're now they're mad and uh, they started trying to fight us and shit. And th- this is the, the only time I've really seen Matt like go crazy. He came flying over his drum set. I think he like used the bass drum to jump across the toms and he had a mic stand that was folded down, you know, like a half size mic stand with a big round metal base. Yeah. And he was swinging that shit like a sledgehammer at people. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> and I, the whole time I'm over there trying to take my guitar off, I'm all fuck, fucked up from the getting blasted in the face a couple of nights before. But yeah, eventually we, uh, we ran those bikers off. Like somehow we ran them out of the club and got back on stage and continued playing. And the crowd went, fucking nuts because they're like dude those fucking assholes show up here and they fuck up our show they fuck up our scene and you guys fucking ran them off like nobody's ever done that before 
I was like, they picked the wrong motherfuckers to mess with tonight, you know. So, yeah. uh, so we were like heroes to those kids. We ran those mean bikers out of the out of the bar, you know. So that wow. was kind of funny. Dude, Phil, you gotta either write a book or you gotta make like a movie like that fucking Motley Crue dirt, dirt shit. You know? What I'm oh saying? yeah. Oh my god. Because yeah, these stories say, are gold. People are always like, "Yeah, you should write a book," and I'm like, "Yeah, there's too many people still alive. Like, I can't tell all the real stories." You know? <laughs> right. Some, somebody will sue me or be offended or something. Yeah. But... <laughs> can't do okay, anything without somebody being offended. Shit, man, I've barely scratched the tip of the iceberg on these on this tonight. I mean, I got years, twenty five years worth of fucking road stories. <laughs> you know? And every night's a new adventure, you know. So, totally. I don't know how kids do it these days. You know, it's like everybody seems like pussies. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that just me? I don't know, man. Because I, I don't hear these kind of stories anymore. It is kind of no. Everything's really tame these days. Yeah. That's what I was saying earlier. Like I kind of miss that element of danger at a punk show. Not not that I want somebody to get hurt, but at the same time, it's like, man, I don't want it to be boring either. Right. Something's got got to make a story somehow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, when are you going to tell your son all these stories? What age oh. does he have to be? <laughs> he's he's heard it all, man. He's, oh really? Oh yeah, he's my kid. You know, <laughs> you know that's what uh, I, I took him with me to the. Um, when even in blackout uh, jughead's 50th birthday party like yeah. two years ago uh that was the first time he ever saw me play on stage and he got to go and see the show and everything and be backstage so that was kind of fun for him and uh <clears throat> gub who's the other guitar player in even in blackouts has a daughter that's like a year younger than my kid and uh, apparently see i didn't see this happening but they gub's daughter and my son were holding hands like out in the <laughs> parking lot and shit i'm like what and so uh mass from the manjis comes up and he goes hey phil i have to tell you your son is holding hands with gub's daughter i'm like oh really he goes i said well yeah that's my boy and he goes that's that's why i'm telling you now and i was like oh shit i better go check on him but but, yeah my kid i've raised him to not be censored too much i don't let him watch like sex scenes and shit in movies and stuff like that but dude, he loves deadpool and the walking dead and all that shit like he's he's like i was you know when i was his age i was into fucking american werewolf in london and shit like that you know right. like I, I was never censored as a kid by by my mom she let me watch whatever the hell she really didn't have a say you know so <laughs> i just watched whatever the fuck i wanted to and um yeah, you know, like I was thinking about this earlier, thinking about uh, how you guys talk about Prince and Purple Rain and shit a lot. Yeah, <laughs> my grandma came to visit one year <clears throat> when she was still alive, and we had HBO or something. We had cable, which not a lot of people had back in, in, when that time was. Yeah, was like what eighty two or something like that. Eighty four or something. Yeah, somewhere in the early eighties, and. My grandma was over and we're like, oh, yeah, we have cable. You can watch movies on TV now, you know. And, and she's like, oh, the last movie I saw was Old Yeller. You know, like she hadn't seen a movie since Old Yeller. And so somebody's like, oh, we should watch this movie that's coming on now. It's called Purple Rain. And so my poor grandmother, was, I don't think she was in shock, dude. Like, because she, 
<laughs> right about the darling Nikki time, I think we just right. had to turn it off. It was like, hey, this is too much. You know, like, Grandma can't be seeing this, you know, so... But I was laughing to myself thinking about that shit earlier. Lake Minnetonka and shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what in the hell? You know, like, Old Yeller was one thing. They kill a dog. Spoiler, spoiler alert, you know. Yeah. He doesn't make it. But, um, yeah, so she was like, ah, I don't think I'll be watching movies anymore you know, after that. This is what it's come to. Wow. I was just kind of curious. What's the story with camera shy? Like you were stalking someone through photo oh, lens. That, What's that, going on? That, yeah, a lot of the songs that I write are loosely based in reality, but some <laughs> of them are just totally fictional. But that one, we had a photographer that used to take pictures of us all the time whenever we would play around uh, Indiana, like Fort Wayne area, yeah. and named Ed Fred. And he took a lot of pictures of all the bands. And he's actually really good. He was an amateur photographer, but he developed his own film and all that kind of stuff. So I have, uh, he would always, every time we'd come through, he would give me like a cut sheet of all the pictures and prints of all the pictures that he took the time before that we had been there. Yeah. And so Fred is awesome, cool dude, but he does not speak like he, and when he does, it's super like, like, what the fuck did he say? You know, so he's like super, super shy and real soft spoken, but he's an awesome, cool dude once you get to know him and everything. But I always thought. I kind of made up this scenario like, what if he like super was hot for this chick, you know, but he <laughs> he can barely speak, you know, like he wants to talk to her, but he's too shy or whatever. And so right. I just kind of, I made a story about that using him as a point of reference. I don't even think he knows that, but yeah, that he was my inspiration on that one. That's awesome. So genuine whiskey man's like totally true about you probably then. It's, it's kind of a combination of me and Keith <laughs> together. Yeah. 
And it's funny too because, like, like I said, I used to write the songs at night, and then I would go to bed, and they would record what I wrote. That song is not supposed to say genuine. I mean, that sounds so fucking redneck to me. Man, it's supposed to be genuine. But I come down from being asleep, and I come down, and I hear the vocals. I'm like, what, what the fuck are you guys doing? It sounds like some idiot redneck. And he's like, well, Mass was like, I think it's kind of charming. You know, I'm like, no, it's fucking not genuine. What the fuck? But, but it was already too far gone. Like, they'd already spent hours tracking that shit. So I'm like, fuck it. Just leave it alone. It's natural for him to say it that way. So let's just keep it. Yeah, I like it like that. I guess maybe yeah. I'm just used to it, but... Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I fucking almost went into a panic when I heard that shit the first time. I'm like, what the fuck is he saying? Genuine? <laughs> Nobody fucking says that. But yeah. <laughs> a cement pond. Exactly. Getting my insurance, my umbrella together. So how about Peanut Butter Girl, then? special uh peanut butter girl is about keith's ex-girlfriend that he dated forever she was also our merch girl uh in the early days she used to travel with us and and the funny story about that is we were recording at a little studio downtown and uh roxanne at the time was our bass player and she had kind of purple hair and uh carrie was her friend who was keith's girlfriend had uh, it was, she has naturally dark hair, but she had bleached it blonde, and it was half growing out. I think they call it ombre now, but back then it was just roots. Yeah, so she had these, <laughs> these long brown roots with the uh, blonde hair. And we stopped at a stoplight or something. Somebody had to jump out of the car for some reason, and Carrie and Roxanne got out. And these two black dudes are sitting at a bus stop, and one guy said, "Oh, damn." I'd like to have some of that peanut butter girl because her hair looked like peanut butter, the, the color that it was. And then Roxanne jumped out, and the other guy goes, I want some of that grape jelly. You know, so it was like, there were no peanut butter and jelly girls. And I was like, oh, that's funny as shit, dude. I'll use that in a song. And so I, I and Carrie couldn't cook worth a fuck. So I, I made peanut butter girl about a girl that couldn't cook. All she could make was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But that's the basis of that was that's those great. two dudes those two dudes going i want me some of that peanut butter girl you know so <laughs> <laughs> i take inspiration from re- real life you know <laughs> <laughs> hey 
Hey Phil, what about she's a poser? Is that about someone in particular? Yeah, actually, actually, it is. Uh, it was about our first bass player Janelle, because she was uh, the way I met her. She was um, playing upright bass and singing in a bluegrass band, and so <laughs> we were kind of like, dude, what the fuck? Like she's punk tonight, <laughs> but now she's in a bluegrass band tomorrow. Like, and it was she kind of had. I guess you would call it diverse taste, but she liked Ace of Base and like weird and that <laughs> What is Love? You know that fucking yeah, song? Yeah. Like what she would listen to that shit all the time. I'm like, what the fuck? Do you like you're not a punk? You're like, what the hell are you listening to? And so yeah, it kinda it's loosely based on her That's shifting great. gears to whatever was appropriate at the time, you know. It's like yeah. Oh, I'm gonna wear a spiked wristband and all this and like, what the fuck, man? Be real. Be yourself. Totally. So many so, good yeah. songs on those records, man. Mm-hmm. I still listen to them all the time. That's awesome, dude. It's fucking 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. I've been listening to uh, Full Leather Jacket quite a bit lately. I kind of just, you know, when it came out, I just sort of, I mean, I liked it, but I just mm-hmm. sort of always went back to the pucker up and the, and the self-titled. But lately, man, Full Leather Jacket's actually really good. I think it's might be better than pucker up see i think so too well just it maybe it's me being biased but i think um the albums progressed musically like we i got better at it i think at songwriting yeah. and and the, the songs are more interesting musically mm-hmm. than the i mean the first album it's like the same beat the whole whole fucking record it's like the same song over and over again which is kind of cool i mean it makes mm-hmm. it what it is at the same time, it's not very creative. You know, it's just kind of like fast, 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 and that's it. You know, and it's all real short songs and everything. But I think as I know that Ben Weasel did not like Pucker Up because he said it sounded like a metal album, which I don't know what he's talking about. I listened I to it again. I'm like, this does not <laughs> no. sound like a metal album. It's got no. some fast songs. Yeah, like Test I mean, Tube like, Teens or something. But Cynical like, Fool like and metal, you know, like. No, I didn't think it sounded metal at all. But yeah, he was like, ah, "That's a fucking metal record. I don't like that shit. That's a metal record." And I was like, "Um, <laughs> to me, it sounds more like maybe Bad Religion influenced yeah, more than, totally. you know, because they were a huge influence in us. For us, uh, for me, you know, right. the, the biggest influences for me in the beginning was definitely the Misfits. They're my favorite band of all time.
Ramones for sure. I didn't like the Ramones the first time I heard them. Really? Because I was I was fully into like thrash hardcore mode, and a buddy of mine played me into the century. Oh. And when you're going from like the yeah. accused Martha Splatterhead, and you put on into the century, like what the <laughs> fuck is this shit? I'm not listening <laughs> to this. It's right. like old people music or something. You know, I didn't really get into the Ramones until Ramones Mania. I, I picked that up from somewhere, and I, I was like, oh shit, like this is legit, man. And so I totally shifted my whole way of thinking and got way into the Ramones for a while. You know, I still yeah. love them, but uh, Misfits for me have always been awesome. And we got, we were fortunate enough to get to play with them a bunch of times during the Michael Graves era, which I don't know, you know, yeah. the, the jury, <laughs> the jury's out on that shit. But um, to me, it was exciting to, to see Jerry and Doyle on stage. Yeah. You know, for me, that was like, and before that, all you had was Christ the Conqueror. So I think I'll take Michael Graves Misfits over that shit. Totally. But, um, but uh, we ended up. I ended up becoming friends with them. I'm actually uh, Jerry Jr. His son that plays guitar with them sometimes is uh, a buddy of mine and Jerry too. Actually, I dyed Doyle's hair black once, which <laughs> not not everybody can say that. Right. But uh, but yeah, it's it's cool playing in in music as long as I have. I've gotten to meet a lot of the people that were inspirations to me in the beginning, and actually have played with some. Like I played for Marky Ramone. And uh, which was fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, those big influences were the Misfits, Ramones, Bad Religion, Seven Seconds. Um, those are kind of the big and Descendants, of course. Descendants were a huge. But at the time when we started, we didn't have the Descendants. We had all, you right. know, like yeah. as an active active band. I still loved all the old Descendants records, but we got to see all, you know, and they would come to town and I'm like, holy fuck, it's the Descendants without Milo. And so yeah. that was good enough for that point. And all has some great songs too. Oh hell yeah. those guys and sharing the stage with some of them over the years has been awesome super cool it's cool i got one more song that i want to know the origins of if, yeah if you're not too bored with that whole thing not, not at all what's not up with the i don't want or is that about someone or is that a fictional thing yeah that's that's a generic that was i was uh Miss struggling Nasty. for a, a filler song well yeah it's kind of based on somebody 
Yeah, there was a girl that we knew that was kind of like a scene hoe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. she would she would fuck everybody, you know, and I don't know. It's just every time we'd see her coming, it's like, oh fuck, hide, you know, like here here comes Miss <laughs> Nasty again, you know. So that was probably probably loosely based on her, but there's a lot of those kind of people, you know, yeah. just nasty people. <laughs> Yeah, and totally. that's always yeah. the one that wants you. You know, it's like ah, well, if if anybody, why this bitch? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Hey, I always like the uh, Holiday Road cover. I found out long ago, the long way down on a road, Holiday Road. people know that one because it was just on that seven inch yeah but, I, just, uh, I just know it from you know vacation of course yeah and, it's a great uh, song it's a great pop song you know and i think it uh i wish we had recorded that better because uh the studio that we recorded that as a little 16 track studio here in nashville and the guy that recorded that was not really into punk music at all so he didn't really know what to do with us and the mm-hmm. uh and the instruments we were using, like the amps and shit we were using, were garbage. So it sounds like shit. But um, I wish we had recorded that at like Sonic Iguana or something. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I think I, I I played bass on that too. I think uh, Roxanne was so new that she couldn't play that bass line. Yeah. Also, I taught everybody how to play their instruments. So <laughs> except Janelle, <laughs> Janelle knew how to play. She knew how to play bass before we met her. But uh, Roxanne and Heather uh, had no clue about how to play an instrument so i had to teach them wow that's nuts man i mean it's like you're teaching the bass players you're driving the van you're writing all the songs i mean you're fully invested in this shit dude yeah i was like like a like a dictator sometimes i guess according to some of the other band members because i was very uh, uh determined to have things the way that i wanted them to be you know because i had the vision or whatever the yeah, hell totally and like, visionary right right and it's like I couldn't just let people do whatever the fuck they wanted to. That wasn't the band that I wanted, you know? Right. 
I think all good bands have that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like a Johnny Ramone. He's a total dick. Like everybody's like, oh, like a fucking asshole, but he's the one. He was the glue that made everybody have the matching jackets and shit. You yeah. know, like he had the yeah. the image and the work ethic and all that kind of shit. Somebody's right. got to be the asshole. You know? yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, nothing gets done. You yeah, know, if you're like, done right, you got to do it yourself. That's right. Do you think? Um, finding a, a you know a replacement female bass player today would just is it it's got to be easier right mm. just because you know it's more i don't know more people play instruments now than the early 90s maybe yeah it's maybe it's, it's I, I, don't, I don't know because i i thought that in 2009 and uh i i fucking got tricked like this was a horrible thing that happened um when we decided to get the band back together I originally we had Yvonne uh Yvonne joined us later, mm-hmm. but originally there was another girl that was gonna play with us named Jemima. And uh she was living she was Australian. I met her in Australia when we toured with the queers. Uh she was at one of the shows and she was the lead singer of a, a band down there. And then she moved to Ireland and we stayed in touch and she was like, you know, uh I I'd like to play in your band or you know, we talked about maybe having her be the bass player. And I was like, like, do you know how to play? And she's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Well, let's let's make that happen. So let me send you a bunch of songs and all this kind of shit. And I kept, you know, in touch with her. I was like, how's it going? Are you learning the songs? Yeah, 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 it's coming along great. So I'm like, this was leading up to InSubFest. And so I'm like, I got to make sure that this is going well. I can't just believe you, you know. So I flew to Ireland to have like a couple of rehearsals with her to make sure that it was coming along good dude she fucking lied like she did not know (laughs) she did not know how to play that she hadn't learned one fucking song she didn't know how to play the bass she didn't even own a bass damn and i was like what the fuck dude like i think she just wanted to say that she was in the band and maybe come to america i don't like i don't know what the hell her plan was but she definitely did not put an ounce of effort into learning any of the songs or even acquiring a bass to practice with and i'm like what the fuck so i i booked like i think like four days over there to rehearse with her and i immediately after the first day i i went to an internet cafe and i wrote to uh keith and i'm like dude we're we're in trouble like we gotta go with a plan b now like this girl there's no way in hell that she's ever going to be ready in time for in subfest or at this point i don't even want her in the band because she's a liar you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> so um I started racking my brain and I thought about this band called The Scissors that I'd mm-hmm. seen op- opening for somebody else. And uh, I was like, they have a girl guitar player uh, named Yvonne that might be able to pull this off. And so I, I emailed Yvonne and asked her you know, if she would uh, be interested in playing for us. And, and she wrote me back and she said, I have one question. When do I get my leather jacket? I was like, all right, cool. She's <laughs> in. you know. Like, and so, so we got her in the band it was kind of like a boot camp situation with her too where we had to get her up to speed within a couple of weeks because uh, we had shows booked all the way out to insub and uh she pulled it off you know she did a good job and everything but it was it wasn't meant to be like a, a full-on reunion and all that kind of stuff it, after uh doing a couple of shows and a couple of failed things it's like yeah you know what we better just put this to bed while we before we ruin our reputation or something gotcha yep so decided to go go out on top instead of looking back (laughs) like shit you know (laughs) 
Phil, you got to tell us just a little bit more about playing those gigs with Marky Ramon, dude. So I've known, I met Marky when he was doing the intruders and uh, they, they stayed at my house and stuff. And we played, wait, some wait shows. a second, wait a second. I don't mean to be Marky stayed at your house or his band, the intruders his, his, stayed at his band. He stayed at a hotel, but yeah, the rest, okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, Mar- Marky wasn't really sitting cool. on the couch or anything. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, uh, no, yeah, yeah, he didn't stay at the house, but the rest of his band did, which included uh, Johnny Fingers Paisano, who now plays bass for Bruce Springsteen, which is fucking crazy. That is crazy. Uh, yeah, but he, um, like, all those guys stayed at my house, and we've partied all night. I think we watched, I think we watched midget porn or something <laughs> into the wee hours. Yeah, it was one of those nights. And so, uh, so anyway, I, I've known Marky for a while, and uh, he needed. I don't know how this happened exactly, but he was doing some shows in Europe and he needed a band. Like he needed a guitarist and a bass player. And he had this guy singing named David Devine. And I'm not sure where he came from, some metal band or something, I think. But uh, so he talked to me and Joe because uh, we were going to be over there anyway on tour with the Queers. And we we're like, all right, fucking send us a set list and tell us what songs that you want to do. So we had no rehearsal at all. It's just he's, you know, which is, I guess that's the way a lot of professionals do is they just expect you to be on your A game when you show up. So Joe and I would practice like in the hotel room, we would go over Ramon songs for a couple of hours every night just to kind of get ourselves ready. And uh, we show up in Spain and it was, I think it was Madrid or it's either Madrid or Barcelona. I think it was Madrid. And, uh, we get up there and I hadn't seen Marky in years. You know, we get up there and he's like, Hey Phil, what's up? And, uh, we plug our shit in and he goes, okay, uh, let's do a couple of numbers. <laughs> I was like a couple of numbers. We're not going to go through more than like two or three songs you know, before the show, you know? And so he goes, let's do, uh, you know, like Blitzkrieg Bop and, uh, something else, you know, whatever he said. And we're like, okay, cool. So we're standing there and I'm waiting. I'm, I'm at the mic, like with my bass and I'm waiting I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? And, and he goes, Phil. And I'm like, I turn around and go, what? What's up? And he goes, you're Dee Dee. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. And I turn back around, one, two, three, four. And we go into <laughs> it. You know, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm Dee Dee. I count off the songs. And so, yeah, that <laughs> That's was awesome. an, an interesting part of the rehearsal that I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have thought to even do that, you know. And so, but we ended up playing that show uh, and it was nuts. Like the crowd was going totally apeshit through that whole show. At one point, uh, you know, I, I was play, plugged in with a cable, you know, and from my bass to my amp, and uh, I wasn't using a wireless or anything. And at one point, the kids in the crowd grabbed my legs and lifted me off the floor and carried me around the room. Like, in, I was playing, you know, I was playing my bass, and I was being held up from the knee to the ankle by a whole bunch of people, and they kind of, like, took me out into the crowd. <laughs> it was fucking bizarre, man. And so then they put me back on stage and keep playing. And uh, at the end of that show... Um, the manager or whatever, tour manager for Marky who'd been working with him since the Ramones came up to me and Joe and said, dude, that was the best that I've heard Marky sound since the actual Ramones. Like he's never had a band that good in, in, until tonight. And I was like, no shit. And, you know, that was me and Joe. That's awesome. So it, was it was the queers with Marky on drums almost, you know? Great. That's awesome. And he liked it enough that he asked us to do um, Brazil and uh, a bunch of shows in the States, too. So I've, I got some really cool pictures of me playing with Marky, like in Texas and stuff like that. So That's badass. 
and we stay in touch. I, I usually write to him every year around Christmas time just to say hi or whatever. And uh, he's a good dude. Yeah. That's incredible. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I got another crazy fucking story. Sorry, I'm telling you all these stories, but no, when I was awesome. in when I was in the Independence, you know, I played bass for the Independence for about a year. Joey Ramone produced them. Yeah. You know, they mm-hmm. had a, they had an album. He uh, managed them back too, in, right? Yeah, yeah. He was their manager slash producer in the studio, and so and Evil, the singer for the Independence, was Joey's roommate slash bodyguard. So they like everywhere Joey went, Evil was there, like you know, as his escort or whatever. And uh, we played at the Joey Ramone birthday bash one year, and like the Shangri Las were there. I got to watch them sound check leader of the pack, you know, shit like wow. that was awesome. like such cool shit. Uh, even when I was in the Queers, we played one of those, and Ronnie Spector shared the dressing room with us, like wow, just crazy, <laughs> crazy shit like that. Um, but yeah, one year we the year that we were with Ronnie Spector, um, there was another Joey Ramone that was at the Bowery Ballroom, and there was another Joey party going on at CBGB's. So me and Evil decided to run over there, and because uh, the Misfits were playing, so we walked in, and Jerry's on stage, and they're playing, and somehow he sees me at the back of the room, like when we first came into CBGB's past the bar. And he sees me at the back of the audience. He goes, hey, everybody, fucking Phil from Teen Idols. And everybody turns around and looks at me and is like, who? Like, who the fuck? Like, I don't think half of these people knew who the hell I was. But it was kind of awesome that Jerry only was shouting me out from the stage at CBGB's. You know, it was like yeah, pretty fucking cool. cool. But then at the end, Jerry was all excited and wanted to hang out. Like, I don't know. He was like super pumped about that night. And um, Arthur Kane from The Dolls was there and shit. And he's yeah. introduced me to all these people. Like, oh, dude, this is Arturo Vega and this is Arthur Kane and shit. Like, uh, he's damn. Jerry's like taking me around and introducing me to people and shit. And I was like, fuck, this is unreal. I'm backstage at CBGB's meeting legends and shit. Yeah. And he goes, hey, we're all going to Arturo's apartment. And, dude, I got this new invention. It's this vodka protein shake. You got to try it, man. You got to try it. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't, dude. I gotta go back to the other venue and meet up with the rest of my band because I, I think we're leaving to go to Boston tonight or something. He's like, "Oh fuck, you can't come for a little while." I'm like, "Dude, you don't know how bad I want to, but I really, I can't." You know, I'm just like, "Fuck." So that was a fun night. And then uh, another time we were there uh, with when I was in the Independence, uh, Mickey Lee, you know Joey's brother, yeah. was there. And and he ends up like somehow I ended up at a different bar after the show and he was there and he was like, Hey, you're in the independence. I'm like, Yeah, he goes, You're my brother's favorite band and shit. I'm like, Really? Like that's <laughs> that's weird. But uh so anyway, I ended up drinking with him and he goes, Let's go back to Joey's apartment. I think I have something of yours that I need to give to you. And I was like, What? And so me and him take a cab back to Joey's apartment. In, in Manhattan and we're and it's like that his leather jacket was still hanging in the closet and shit you know it was almost wow. like he was just out of town you know kind of thing yeah. but I guess I guess Mickey was using that apartment as like a party pad or something where people would just go there and drink and whatever and he goes yeah I think I think this something belongs to you and he, he opens the closet and he had the master two inch analog tape from the back back from the grave independence album that joey produced he goes you probably need to take this i think this belongs to you i was like well it doesn't belong to me but it (laughs) probably 
should go to the band. I can take that to them. And and then he pulls another and he goes, Is this yours? This this might be yours too. And I look and it was fucking acid eaters. He almost gave me the master two-inch reel-to-reel tape from the studio of Acid Eaters. Wow. Like, are you fucking stupid? Like, don't give me that shit. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was that was a crazy night. Like, yeah. hanging out with Joey's brother in his apartment, seeing his leather jacket hanging up and shit. Was, that was just really cool. Yeah, it's got to be surreal, right? Yeah. And I, I wish I wouldn't have been drunk. Because like, I think I was <laughs> I was drinking a lot. And it was like like a dream you know like fuck i'm drinking whiskey in joey ramon's apartment right now with his brother like this is bizarre yeah wow but it's, it's cool shit like that that i've i've gotten to experience just playing punk music you know it's super cool yeah. dude you've uh you've you've experienced some really awesome shit dude <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean some bad shit too but i mean joey yeah. ramon's apartment that is yeah i've had not... a had some pretty cool shit happen 
you know, and that's that's just the punk stuff. Like I've got a lot of other stories. Like I don't know if you guys have seen that picture of me and Little Richard hanging out and shit. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> no. I, yeah, like I've I had uh, Little Richard was performing on the Nashville Network one time, and and my mom worked there, so I wanted to meet him because was, I was really into Little Richard. I still am. I think he's awesome. Ready, set, go, man, go. down there and watched his rehearsal and then afterwards i had him sign a box set like i had a cd box set and then met him and he was real cool and shit like his bodyguards didn't want me anywhere near him at first and then he saw me he's like oh i talked to him you know and so i went over there and he signed some shit and then i was walking across the parking lot leaving there and he was in his he had a white limo i guess he was going back to the hotel or something and he drove right past me in the parking lot and rolled the window down and he had like a kleenex in his hand and he's like bye and he started waving the kleenex at me it's like oh my god and there's like there's a picture of that like there's a picture of this hand waving a kleenex and then there's a second picture of me like turning around laughing my ass off because that was fucking hilarious bye Bye. Bye. It was nice to meet you. I was like, oh my God. But yeah, that was pretty cool. And uh, I have a, a couple of pictures of me sitting with DJ Fontana, who was Elvis's drummer in the 50s, yeah. like have, having dinner together at a party. You know, like yeah. cool shit like that. I've got people really cool because, uh, you know, I'm really into the old rock and roll stuff and right. meeting those guys. It was, that's a thrill too, you know. Totally. And uh, when when I was a kid, and and I guess it still exists today. My mom is really good friends with the Everly Brothers' mom, Margaret Everly. <laughs> wow. She's still alive. She's like ninety something, and she's 
she's been a friend of my mom since I, as long as I can remember. So when I was a kid, probably like five or six, she used to take me to Margaret's house so they could have coffee and talk or whatever. And I would be bored out of my mind, you know, cause I'm a young kid at an old lady's house. And so <laughs> she would let me go downstairs and play downstairs. Just, I, you know, play with toys by myself or whatever. And that was the house that the Everly brothers lived in when they were teenagers. And wow. so their bedrooms were still there and still done the way they were when they lived there. And, uh, like Phil Everly's room was painted all black. I remember that was really cool, you know, yeah. it had an all black, all black bedroom. And but they had like a den down there, and so I would, you know, play with my Hot Wheels cars or whatever the hell I was doing down there. And uh, she told me one time, she said, "Oh yeah, this was their, this was their music room, and sometimes their friend from Texas would come up named Buddy, and they would play." And <laughs> and I was like, it was years later. I'm like, she was talking about fucking Buddy Holly. Holy shit! Wow. Like I used to, pl- I used to play in a room with my toys in a room where Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers used to fucking jam. You know, like what the hell? It's unreal <laughs> to think so about awesome. that shit. That's so but cool. that's yeah. Growing up in the music world here in Nashville, you got to, I experienced shit that I took for granted. You know, back when I was a little kid, I didn't know any better. But now it's like holy shit! I can't believe that really happened. It's amazing. I, and I basically grew up backstage at the Grand Old Opry. I hated it. You know, like it, it was definitely not what I was into, but I was just with my mom and she was hanging out with people. And uh, I remember back in the 70s being backstage and Dolly Parton was performing wow. the Opry. And so I was eating like a Hershey bar, candy bar. And I'm standing there kind of backstage in the green room. Like, I used to play in the dressing rooms of, like, Roy Acuff and all these people, you know, like, just, I was this little kid. They thought it was funny because there's a little kid running around and they all were like, oh, come in here, boy, and have some peanuts or, you know, whatever the hell. So, so I'm standing there eating this chocolate bar and Dolly Parton's about to go on stage <laughs> and she looks at me and she goes, little boy, you better not eat that whole candy bar or you're going to get fat like me. And I looked at the candy bar and I threw it in the trash because <laughs> it was an adult telling me not to do something. So I was just being obedient and I just threw it in the trash and she died laughing thinking that so <laughs> that little kid would rather throw his candy bar away than be fat like her. So she it was just kind of funny. You know, <laughs> That's great. Shit like that. Wow, Phil, you've led quite the life, man. Uh, it's not over yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Phil, thanks so much for coming on, dude. This was fucking great, man. You got so many great stories. I can't wait to have you back on to tell some more. You know what I'm saying? Man, I hope I haven't like bent your ears and shit. But I... Nah, man, this was super fun. Awesome, man. I have a blast listening to you guys every week, so I'm excited thanks, to be a guest finally. Yeah, we're excited oh, to man, finally have you, man. This has been really cool. Yeah, it's, right a big deal. it's a big deal for, for me and Jody, you know, because, oh, yeah. you know, we've been listening to you for 20, 25 years almost. Yeah. Holy crap. It's probably yeah. a little scary, but it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I, I like listening to you guys, too, because uh, you guys have turned me on to a lot of new stuff that I didn't even know existed. You know, like I wouldn't have known about the Jasons or, uh, you know, Horror Section or any of those, uh, the Windowsill bat bites all that stuff that you guys are playing i dig it man i'm just glad that there's somebody out there still keeping us alive man because it's what i like you know oh yeah we do too man we love it awesome thanks dude yeah yeah so yeah come back someday anytime man anytime you guys want to have me i'm always around so cool let me know all right right, man thanks phil 
Yeah, yeah, thanks man. so much, Phil. Yo, it's Jeff Palmer, and you're listening to The Dummy Room. All right, that's our little conversation with Philip Hill. What a fucking cool dude, and so many great stories. Hope you made it through both episodes, so if you've only heard this one, go back and check out part one. It's on our feed somewhere, and uh, since Nate and I forgot to do the damn outro, you're just stuck with me. I'm going to keep it short, so uh, thanks so much for listening. You Dummy Room people are the coolest. Stay tuned. Thursday, we got another cool guest, and until then, see you. Can't say why we don't say goodbye.